Hello and welcome to PathPod. I'm Dr. Mike Arnold of Children's Hospital Colorado, and today we're around the scope to hear about pathologists' work in depth. Today our host, Dr. Sarah Jang of Duke Health, and I are joined by a group of cytopathologists to hear about everything from their contact with patients to standardization in their field. Today our guests are Dr. Karthik Vishwanathan, cytopathology fellow at the Massachusetts General Hospital. You can find him on Twitter at doc underscore K-A-R-T-I-K. Dr. Ravita Henderson-Jackson, residency program director at the University of South Florida and soft tissue and cytopathologist at Moffitt Cancer Center. You can find her on Twitter at EHJPathDiva. Dr. Sanchita Roy Chowdhury is a cytopathologist and molecular pathologist at MD Anderson Cancer Center. You can find her on Twitter at Sanchita underscore Roy. And Dr. Dan Curtis, he's the past medical director of the Wisconsin State Public Health Laboratory, the immediate past president of the American Society of Cytopathology, and a retired breast GYN and cytopathologist from the University of Wisconsin. Now here's your host, Dr. Jang. Hello, and welcome to PathPod. Today we're doing our segment Around the Scope, and today's featured specialty is cytopathology. We're fortunate to be joined by a number of leaders and rising stars in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Jang, and by way of disclosure, I am a cytopathologist, as well as chief of head and neck pathology at Duke. I'm joined here by my co-host, Dr. Michael Arnold. Hey, Sarah. And let's first just go around and have everyone introduce themselves. Let's start with Kartik. I'm Kartik Vishwanathan. I'm currently the Cytopathology Fellow at MGH, and I'm excited to hang out with my fellow future colleagues here in this lovely chat. I grew up in India for a period of time. I did part of my training in Michigan and in New York, and then I came here for my fellowship. So yeah, I'm excited to drink some wine and have this conversation with everybody. Excellent. Evita? Hi, I'm Evita Henderson-Jackson. I am a residency program director in sunny Tampa, Florida at the University of South Florida. I am also a cytopathologist who works at Moffitt Cancer Center, and I specialize also in bone and soft tissue pathology. I've been in Florida for about 12 years now. I was born originally in New York, Long Island. I lived there till I was 11, and then my family moved to South Carolina, where I uh, did middle school and high school and undergrad. I was in Aiken, South Carolina. That's right outside of Augusta, Georgia. Everybody probably knows that because they have that wonderful golf tournament there. And then I am always been a Gamecock and not a Tigers fan. Very important to clarify that if you're from South Carolina. All right, Sanchita. Hi, I'm Sanchita Roy Chaudhary. I have a very long last name, so everybody refers to me as Sanchita Roy. I am currently at MD Anderson Cancer Center. I do cytopathology, of course. I'm also a molecular pathologist. I've been here for about eight and a half years now. I did my training at the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda and then at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York before I moved to warmer locales. And so I've been here in Houston, and I'm really excited to be part of this group. Thank you. Thank you. Dan? Hi, I'm Dan Curtis. Let's see, I'm at the University of Wisconsin, and I've been there for 35 years. I'm also medical director of the uh, state public, well, just immediately past medical director of the state public health laboratory, because I actually 
um, retired uh, not too long ago to engage in my 35 different hobbies. Anyway, I've been doing breast and GYN pathology for quite a while and been a cytopathologist for all those 35 years. I run the School of Cytopathology at Wisconsin, and I am immediate past president of the American Society of Cytopathology. Also, I want to put a plug in, I'm the president-elect of the History of Pathology Society, and I have a lot of history to go over. And uh, my training, I went to uh, school at uh, Michigan. I used to have season tickets for the football. I uh, did uh, a couple of years of general surgery at University of Kansas while waiting for my wife to finish her training in pediatrics, and then trained at Wisconsin with stop-offs at credit to Dr. Frost at, at Hopkins for maybe most of my inspiration, and then finished up at Wisconsin, and have stayed in the Midwest for my whole career. And I find that uh, cytopathology is, of all the specialties I've seen in pathology, the best with the best group of people, the closest friends, a good family. Wow, absolutely. And congratulations on your retirement. And obviously, we're here in cytopathology because we agree cytopathology is the best field. And so to kind of start off with that, I'm curious to hear what spurred your interest in cytopathology. How did you first get interested in cytopathology? There was a a cytotech who was teaching the School of Cytology at Wisconsin, Norma Arvold. And she actually had originally in 1947 gone to train with Dr. Pat Nikolai. She was a school mind type and would come back, you know, with a, a ruler and a pencil in the bun and beat the residents until they uh, understood, you know, the importance of the subject. And she fought all the battles of the early intervention in cervical cancer. And she's very inspirational. And I think actually I'll credit a cytotech for my early interest. Wow. I think for me, you know, I have to give a shout out to my mentor at Cornell, who actually inspired me to, to go inside of pathology, uh, Rema Rao. She is an absolutely amazing cytopathologist. So she was at Cornell. Now she's at Montefiore uh, Hospital, Albert Einstein. And I remember I was in my first year, I had like a two week elective rotation with her and everything seemed like voodoo initially. I was looking at this at the slide under the microscope. I'm like, I don't know what to make of this. This is just, I don't know what this is. But, you know, she took the time to really explain everything and I could tell how passionate she was. And when I started to actually understand cytopathology, it became a lot more fun. And I was like, this is probably the closest general field that you're going to get at this point, you know, in pathology. And it's exciting because you go on these rapids, you still see patients, you know, to a certain extent in the clinic. And the way I look at cytopathology is like the emergency medicine of pathology, because essentially we're the ones who are helping or potentially helping triage specimens appropriately to make sure we get the appropriate diagnosis. All those exciting reasons I ended up getting into getting interested in cytopathology. Can't agree more. Dan, can I just ask one question? You said sure. Michigan. Is that the University of Michigan? Yes, Ann Arbor. Yikes. Well, I went to Michigan State as an undergrad. Who <laughs> oh, you? Ugh. Oh, boy. This dinner party just got a I little know. contentious. Yeah, huh? it got rough. It's okay. <laughs> if it gets really bad, I'll just edit it out. You can. That's, that's true. Uh, I hope I, I don't I, have to boot anyone off the meeting. I don't have my football helmet here. Jeez. <laughs> Ooh. Well, yeah. well anyway, my brother went to the University of Michigan, so... I guess I'm somewhat okay with them now, but before I wasn't so sure about it. <laughs> uh, I remember when Dr. Naylor, when I was a medical student, uh, pulled out this uh, cardboard cutout, a six-foot can of Aquanet Rayette, 
which was what they used to spray on uh, conventional smears to fix them, right? Was hairspray that was plastic and ethanol. And so I, I even got uh, early cytopath at, at Michigan. Although later on, when we get into it, I really want to credit Dr. Frost at Hopkins for his boot camp. And that that absolutely transformed me. Great. What about Evita and Sanchita? How did you get interested in cytopath? I have to echo what Kartik says. I loved cytopathology because I still was connected to almost like the general aspect where I can look at anything from the head to the toe and still be able to help out my clinical team. And I love the challenge. That's why I also do bonus soft tissue. I love the challenge. I love something different, a variety every day and figuring it out. I kind of echo the same sentiment. Before I started my rotation in cytopathology, I was having the hardest time trying to figure out what I actually like because everything seems interesting. And it seems like right from your first year of residency, you need to know what you want to do your fellowship in because you need to do your fellowship application. And, and I was confused because I was like, I like this and I like that and I like everything. And then I did my cytopathology rotation and I'm like, this is perfect because I get to do everything, everything that I like and that you're kind of on the front line. You're like the first people to see what they're aspirating. You know what the tumor is. And then the more I started getting interested in it, I also realized the potential of what you could do with these specimens. And that's kind of what triggered what I followed my cytopathology fellowship with, which is the molecular, because I felt like when when I did my molecular fellowship or when I applied for it, there were very few people who actually did cytopath and molecular. It was mostly people who did search path and heme path. And I felt like we had this vast resource inside of pathology and people were not making use of it in molecular or not as much as they could. And and that's what triggered me to do both these fellowships. And I thought it was a perfect combination for me because I got to do everything I liked and more. Also, kind of to piggyback off what Kartik said, you always need to have someone who inspires you. And so when I was a resident and I did my first rotation in cytopathology, our cytopathology director was Andrea Batty. She kind of retired super early from cytopathology. And she was such an inspiration because she was a great mentor. She was full of enthusiasm. And she was kind of young. And then she just decided to do a career flip and she went into Dermpad and she did a Dermpad fellowship kind of like while she was sort of the director of cytopathology. So for me, that was like, wow. I mean, again, just to reiterate how great pathology is that you could do something like that. But she kind of was one of my triggers in terms of piquing my interest in cytopathology. And I'm ever so grateful to that. Well, Andrea has some really interesting history. I mean, she was president of the Papanicolaou Society. She was the reason that we have the thyroid system. Absolutely. And there's brilliance and a, a bit of free spirit about Andrea. I'm a big yes. fan. I mean, like for, for someone to be the peak of their career and then suddenly deciding that they wanted to do a fellowship, that takes gut. And I truly admire what she did. Followed where her passions took her. That really brings up a good point. I think one thing that I'm hearing from a lot of you is the really, really important role of role models and mentors and the incredible impact that one person can have on your career trajectory, right? And I think that one of the things that we want to do with the show and with PathPod in general is give a little bit of that telling stories, sharing experiences, and give a little bit of the personal stories that perhaps people weren't able to 
connect during the pandemic. It's something that I keep in mind when I'm going through my day and, you know, every time a med student comes in the frozen lab or comes through on the rotation, I try to be my very nicest self, which maybe isn't very nice, but you just never know who who you might impact and who you could potentially recruit into pathology or cytopathology. And I say that not because everybody should be a pathologist, but I think that sometimes in med school, you don't really enter med school thinking about pathology as a career. And I'm so grateful that I had the ability to work with pathologists that influenced my career trajectory because I love my job. It's the best job, right? Agreed. So you, you hit another button. At Michigan, we had a guy named Jerry Abrams who taught the general pathology course. And he was one of these guys who stood on the stage. And the wind caused his hair to wave even when there was no wind, right? He was just inspirational, you know, good looking, intelligent. Anyway, uh, a number of us became pathologists because of him. And also he convinced us that, you know, the clinicians come to a differential, but the laboratory is where the diagnosis is made. And so we analyze tissues and samples and we know the truth. The other people are merely guessing. Yeah, I still remember my time in medical school, and I remember doing a rotation in pathology, and that was the first time that I stepped into the pathology realm slash the lab area. And I think what really struck me was how nice everybody was. And I just initially, it, I just felt a little bit out of place and weird because I was like, why are people being so nice to me? Is this normal? <laughs> Because coming from like, say, the surgery clerkship, where it's more, it's not necessarily that people aren't nice, but it's more intense. It's like a different mindset that people have. And so coming into pathology, it was just amazing. And people were so brilliant. And I was like, ah, I feel like I'm learning something every single day. There's always something new. There's always something I don't know. And it's great. So that's kind of how I feel pathology really got me in the end. I'm really excited to talk with all the set of pathologists here today. Because like you've been mentioning, there's so many different ways to get into pathology and so many different jobs in pathology. And I think in particular in cytopathology, not only do you do a lot of different things, but you interact directly with patients. Sarah, could you tell us a little bit about your FNA clinic that involves ultrasound guidance? Oh, yeah. That's actually one of the things that I really love about Cytopath is so we have had an ultrasound machine in the pathology department in our FNA clinic for probably over 10 years now. And obviously, we've been doing palpation guided FNAs for a long time. The way our clinic works here is it's a walk-in clinic. So patient comes to do, get seen. If they have a mass or a lump or bump that's relatively superficial and their oncologist or their endocrinologist says, hey, I think I want to get this biopsy, they give us a call, send the patient over to our clinic room. We do the biopsy basically immediately. We can often tell them something, give them a prelim, basically right after seeing the patient and the patient can then either go get started with the next steps of therapy or go home as the case may be. And so it's really nice. It's very unpredictable because it is a walk in clinic, you know, the patients sometimes are surprised that they're getting a biopsy that same day, because usually with the medical system that we have, it takes a while, you have to schedule, you have to wait. Some of our patients come from hours away. So it's nice to be able to not have them come back for that extra visit. And again, it keeps me on my toes, because
because when I show up to work in the morning, I never know who's going to walk through my door. And being able to interact with patients is, I think, really rewarding. It's challenging. I think as a physician, something relatively challenging that I've spoken to before on the show is as a cytopathologist, you don't have that long-term relationship with that patient. You're meeting this patient for the first time. You're a stranger to them. You're walking in the room and you have to make them comfortable enough that they're willing to have you perform a procedure on them. And I think that is a challenge and a privilege. And I really enjoy being able to have that as part of my career. I think that's one of the things that really is super attractive about being a cytopathologist. One, the fact that you, I mean, there is patient interaction and and exactly what you said, you know, you don't have a long-term relationship with the patient. You're meeting the patient for the first time that someone's referring to you and kind of getting to the point where someone feels comfortable enough to let you stick a needle in them. I think that's one of the biggest challenges and And you have to kind of enjoy that whole thing. But also the other thing that you mentioned, and that's one of the biggest draws for me, is that you literally can go from someone who has a bump or a lump or something and stick a needle and be able to tell them what it is. Often it's something benign and you can give them that good news and that sense of relief. And it's so palpable and so gratifying that you are able to do that on site at the time. I think that's that's something that people don't always realize because for most of pathology, when you're doing something, you do have to put an informal in, fix it, embed it, and it, it usually takes a day. So to be able to do that, I think that's one of the most amazing parts outside of pathology. And even with procedures that our interventional radiologists are doing or the pulmonologists are doing, the fact that you're there and you're able to see things and make an on-site diagnosis, I think that's just amazing. You know, things have changed since we began uh, doing this. I mean, when I was a medical student, I heard about FNA. Dr. Frabel kind of brought Thorsten Lohagen across from Europe and started publicizing this. But when I got into fellowship and started being able to do some of these things and then got to start my own FNA service at Wisconsin, you know, we used to haul around a cart, do the preparation in the halls things that wouldn't be allowed today, you know, I'd be outside the patient room making slides. And then you'd uh, be able to tell them yes, no, within uh, five minutes. And the clinicians loved us because we could help move their patient uh, along the course of their stay to the next stage. And so I'm sure there are more restrictions and more care about spreading aerosols everywhere than we used to have. But, you know, you really can make a major change in the way that patients are cared for and get them through the course of uh, care management. It's a good field for people who like instant gratification and a lot of immediate feedback. So I, I always uh, feel kind of good about myself when I am able to stick a small lesion. And I always feel really, really proud of my fellows and residents when I'm able to help them get their first adequate biopsy and I can see you their know. excitement and work with them. That's really rewarding. Especially when you come up with an interesting diagnosis, mm-hmm. like that, that uh, myoblastoma in a tongue or something like that. Oh, yes. Yes. It is definitely a challenge sometimes on immediate when you don't know what it is, but you're like, well, I don't know what it is, but I certainly hit it. So, yeah. yeah. So talking a little bit about training, Evita, I'd love to hear from you a little bit about your experience as a program director. I know there's a lot of changes in the milestones and you know how things are from your perspective there. Well, given the pandemic, I think the accredited programs are doing very well. I mean, ACGME has worked with us to make sure we can support our trainees and make sure they're 
getting the education that they need and require so they can practice independently. Cytopathology, you're going to be looking forward to a new set of milestones. Milestones 2.0. Yes, I got to work with that wonderful group and kind of adjusting the milestones for the next stage. And a lot of the experience and the feedback that we got from other programs on the first set and some comments we received back when we had the open comment period for the 2.0 milestones were very helpful. Milestones are a set of competencies that a trainee either has to demonstrate in knowledge or in skill or in attitude that they have achieved. ACGME is really going towards a lot of this competency-based education and training because we want to make sure that they can do it and we have observed them doing it. One simple competency like all of us get is FNA procedure. Our fellows have FNA procedure. Like some of the first part of the set of the milestone for a level one is do you understand the importance of a final aspiration biopsy? Know what equipment or tools are kind of used. Whereas a level four is when it gets a little bit more complex and observing that fellow to see if they can get lesions in the neck and places where, okay, knowing how to observe where the carotid is. Where's your thyroid? Where's your organ? Knowing the anatomy and knowing if this is something they're able to do, or is this something that should be deferred to image guidance only type of thing. We wanted to make sure these milestones were functional and applicable to today and to actually what trainees are doing, but still be versatile with other programs that may be smaller, not as large, may not have ultrasound. Some do, some don't. We want to make sure that it was appropriate for them and supply a little bit more specificity to the milestones. So it'll be easier to score them, not like you have a whole paragraph worth of stuff written there, as well as a handbook or a guidebook, as they call it, with examples to help the CCC with what does a level two versus a level three mean. So I think we made big strides in that. And I think trainees will also appreciate that because it's really specific of what is expected of me, what I should know, and they know what they need to discuss and get that feedback on. Great. I know there's also something else that's very exciting that the ASC is working on in terms of the fellowships. And Chita kind of mentioned that there's a sense that you come in first year of residency and then you immediately have to know what fellowship you have to apply for. And I know that some of you on the call are aware the ASC is working on a standardized fellowship timeline. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, there's going to be the potential, basically, to see if we can get a majority of the cytopathology programs to kind of actually have a timeline where we're not pressuring them so early on to apply for these programs, but trying to push it out because they actually do need some time to figure out what do I like? What do I want to do for the the next several years of my career? And sometimes that's kind of hard to do up front, especially because not all programs have the same curriculum. So they might not get a certain rotation till later, whereas other programs, they get this rotation early And so they kind of know what they want to do. Yeah. And I think that at least getting the timeline to be uniform, Kartik, as someone who's relatively recently gone through the system, what are your thoughts on that? 
I think that's a very interesting idea. I do like it a lot, particularly because I know I, I was APCP trained at Cornell. So at least I had a little bit of time to make a decision as to what subspecialty I was interested in, because I had to pick something at the end of second year. The problem is when you're dealing with someone who is single track, like AP only, they are stuck making the decision the same year. And if they don't get that experience in cytopathology in the first year as an elective, then they're just never going to even get that opportunity. So it would be nice to have a more standardized timeline, which enables them to get that potential opportunity to rotate through cytopathology and make a decision for an informed decision for themselves. I think that's a, that's a very good idea. I think it'll be challenging because the system is built on tradition and it's, sometimes <laughs> it's hard to create change, but I think it's good to keep pushing at it till the change happens. So I applaud everybody on this chat who are actively involved in it. So thank you all for doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it speaks to the role of national organizations like the ASC, who is really spearheading this effort, because I think without some kind of centralized leadership, things just kind of keep happening the way they've always happened. And maybe it's good, maybe it's not, but there's not that kind of looking into, hey, is there a better way to do things? And in that vein, you know, we have Dan on the call. Since you've been involved with the ASC for so long, you've been the president, you've been involved in a lot of those efforts. I'm curious to hear your experiences leading these types of efforts? National organizations are extremely important in, in doing this. I mean, you have to reinvent yourself every few years, every decade or so. Otherwise, as, as you intimated, you become stale. And the field changes. Medicine, you know, has gone from not even, well, 1671 with Morgagni, right? They didn't even relate morphology to disease. <laughs> but then Veracau, 1850s with the microscope and Stains in 1900 and so many advances, 1980s, uh, gave rise to understanding of growth factors and implications for cancer. We're in the midst of doing something like that again, because we have, in effect, done our part in the major battle against cervical cancer. Vaccination has come about, the HPV testing is there. Although the app test is still very, very important, we're moving more toward molecular, toward digital analysis of our material. The AI is still a little bit off in the future, but we have to be ready for change and and not sit on our laurels. And in fact, we are going to be working on another summit in the next uh, year or two coming up to the 2022 international uh, meeting in Baltimore with the ASC and the International Congress of Cytology. But that's for more. So I guess trying to reflect in your original question, lots of changes continually happening, and we have to be part of it. ASC will be studying the nature of disease through the cytologic discipline. And we see that the future is very bright with you and this coming generation of leader. And just for any of our listeners who are not familiar with the ASC, it's the American Society of Cytopathology. It is our society. And I feel like, you know, when I go to an ASC meeting, I am going to really a very big dinner party with a lot of my good friends. It's so fun to see everybody in real life, obviously in years that are not pandemic years. And I've been able to get to know the folks who are on my Zoom screen right now on this podcast through involvement with the ASC. So I just have to put a little plug in. 
if you want to get more involved, certainly join the ASC. If you're a trainee, the membership fee is very, very small and you have the opportunity to get involved on committees, whether you're in practice or you're still in training, you know, apply for committees, get involved. You'll meet awesome people. You'll get to work on these efforts that you're hearing about. And it's just, it's really a lot of fun. So I'll get off my little soapbox there. You can continue. Some of my best friends and the people I'm most involved with are are secondary to meeting them in the ASC. Our chances to advance our, our field, you know, we had produced tens of thousands of publications and whatnot, but we got to the maturity where we had to start putting things together. So we developed because of outside forces, but also because of desire, some of these diagnostic systems. Really, the Bethesda GYN was formed secondary to CLIA, really, but we had to put our heads together and come up with something that was simpler to use. Bethesda thyroid, same sort of thing, especially for risk of malignancy, Mm -hmm. Paris, We had to redirect the urinary cytology to something that was useful. Bill Faquin, Harvard's effort because of of Milan and Diana Rossi, because salivary gland is hard. And so, you know, these systems were formed because of reasons and they keep having iterations. And so the ASC helped do these sorts of things. Plus, we did get involvement, I always have to say, with the IAC and the National Academy of Cytology and our friends across the planet. So Dan, I have a question. Do you anticipate there being a system for soft tissue? Because I feel like that itself is also equally complicated. I'm just like, because I was thinking of Evita just now and I'm just like, yes. oh, you know, I'm just thinking. I was trying, I was like, I've been trying to make up my own system. So we all on one shared mental model of what is a typical, what are we going to call positive? <laughs> well, you know, soft tissue is hard, obviously. And I know a few people who are, are good in it. I do know that the WHO is going to be putting together a book on cytopathology of soft tissues. The IARC are right now doing a pancreas, which is a revisitation of the Papanicolaou Society's book. They're also looking at uh, pulmonary and soft tissue as well as lymph node. But will those things really be systems or, or they're just doing a book? Not sure. But Vita, you know, you, I know a couple of other people, like there's a Daria Bueller, who's a cytopathologist and soft tissue person at Wisconsin. And uh, a few others could get together. And if you were interested, you should think about it. It has to offer something. Yeah, and it has, it to, has to be a clarification because systemization, what we've done with some of the systems is it carried it across to the planet and people are now talking the same language. And that has been extremely helpful using the same diagnostic terminology, the same diagnostic tiers. And so, and, and Suchita, of course, is no slouch in soft tissue either. She has a heritage with Tina Fanning and all those folks at uh, uh, MD Anderson. I, mean, I, I think one of the amazing things that cytopathology can lay claim to fame is the standardization of terminology. So, you know, across the planet, we all speak the same language. We know what we mean if we use standardized terminology. And also the the risk of malignancy that has been ascribed to each of these different categories. That, I think, is really amazing because now you can make a diagnosis, 
even if you don't have a definitive diagnosis, you put it into one of these categories, our clinicians know what that actually means and what they need to do in terms of management. And so the more we can do this for different organ systems, it really helps not just our patients, our clinicians, but overall the field of cytopathology. And there's so many people who did that, uh, contributed that concept. And Syed Ali and, and Ed Sebas, who started that risk of malignancy and thyroid, just brilliant. Yeah, because at the end of the day, it really is about how can we improve our practice as a subspecialty to better care for patients, right? And one of the great examples of really looking at what's clinically useful, right, would be your efforts in Sheeta on molecular cytopathology. Talk a little bit about all that you've been doing with small biopsies and lung, and you've been really instrumental in leading those efforts. Well, I, I kind of referred to this earlier, but one of the things that kind of drew me to this was the fact that there was this untapped resource of material inside of pathology. And, and even here at Anderson, when I came here, part of the reason why I came here was because I realized that we were actually doing molecular testing from pretty much everything inside of pathology. So I mentioned that I trained in New York and New York State has some of the strictest rules in terms of what you can do. And so we were restricted to testing just off FFPE tissue, so only cell blocks from cytology. And some of the cytopathologists there that I trained with, like Natasha Reckman, we constantly talked about that, you know, we have all of these stuff on our smears, on our liquid-based cytology that we're not putting to good use. And when I started looking for a job and I interviewed at MD Anderson, I realized that we were scraping off the smears, scraping off cytospins, using everything. Like we had validated all of our molecular testing on cytology material. And that was the main draw for me because I really wanted to be at a place where we were making use of the cytopathology specimens. And like you mentioned, there is this move now. It's becoming like small specimens, like you get your biopsies, you get your cytology. It's technically the same specimen and what you do with it. I mean, you want to maximize what you can do for the patient using that material. So it's not a question of whether the cytology smear is better or your cell blocks better or the uh, biopsy is better. It's what you can put together and give the most information that will help the patient in the long run. And that's something that we're doing here at our institution. And I know because I've actually met several people who've come up to me at different meetings and said that we have validated it on our cytology liquid-based preparations. We validated it on our smears. And what that does is that instead of saying that oh, we can't test this because we don't have enough material on the biopsy, is that now you have more material available and that patient doesn't need another biopsy. And, and that, I think, is really rewarding. And I think it's one of the biggest advantages we have in cytology because we have so many different kinds of preparations and each one has their own advantage. And if you can put it all together, validate those specimens, and this is something I, you know, tell everyone because a lot of people send their material to reference labs and reference labs, you know, they're not validated on everything. And so they'll only accept FFPE. But if you can convince the lab that you're using to validate your material, you are going to do your patients a big favor. You can utilize your material and it gives you great results. So I'm all for pushing utilization of our cytology material because they make for great substrates for molecular testing. Can I throw two things out to you and get response from everyone else? One is that, you know, in a recent, a recent Papanicolaou address, Ed Sebus said that we should redefine cytopathology and it's the art of minimally invasive diagnosis that we can do more and more with less and less. And that so long as we have cellular material, we can investigate and do as little harm to the patient as possible. 
That's one. But two, and recently the CAP SIDO committee did this, is started looking at using cellular material for controls. They took tissue culture, well-characterized cells, and a genetically characterized, genetically characterized to use as control materials, growing that stuff up for doing immunoperoxidase and doing genetic methods. Because in anatomic pathology, we generally have always just used a previous patient specimen that reacted positively to some immuno. And we really didn't engage in the chemistry like controls where we have something that's extremely well characterized. Well, CAP is beginning to look into this and making cell blocks from cell cultures such that you could do validation to a high degree of specificity. What do you think? That's something that's really needed because one of the criticisms of doing some of these tests on cytology material is that you don't have appropriate controls and being able to validate things and have appropriate controls is one of the big big steps that we need to do kind of as a group look together for what we can do to standardize these things so that most labs have access to these materials. I was going to say, I think this is another place where having that organization and having the structure of whether it's the ASC or CAP or USCAP, you know, having our organizations around really helps with these efforts because that helps with A, resources, and then also buy-in, right? So, you know, if you have an organization that's helping to come up with whether it's a new kind of control or a new kind of guideline, you're able to get the stakeholders involved and have that conversation so that we can really do things that are going to improve patient care. And like you say, Sanjita, cytopathology is such this untapped resource. And you you mentioned the regulations in New York, and it's almost like, you know, certainly the regulations are there to protect patients. But in certain ways, in cytopathology, we have to retain our slides, we have to retain our material. And sometimes the regulations can almost get in the way of really doing what's in the patient's best interest. And so I, I don't know if this is something you do at Anderson Sanchita, but anytime we're doing something to a smear that's going to be destructive or scraping it, we use digital imaging and digitize the slide. Are folks doing digital imaging in cytology? Yeah, that, that's a great point because this comes up quite frequently. Typically, when, when we uh, scrape off our smears or something that you know we're going to use from the archival material, we try to ensure that we have something that we leave on file. So we have multiple smears, so we'll keep one smear on file as diagnostic material and use the rest for testing. If for whatever reason we don't have enough slides and you're going to use everything up, an option is to keep part of the slide, you know, scrape off the entire slide, but keep a little bit off it, recover, slip it, put it back on file. And then the third option, as you mentioned, is like the digital archiving part. And we were for some time kind of like trying to routinely scan all of our slides. There are some issues Again, with cytology, because of the smears being three-dimensional, you have to kind of like scan in three different planes. You have to have the right infrastructure for stuff like that. It does take time and resources. So we started scanning only things that we were sending for molecular testing, not every single case, every single slide. And so for the ones that we do scrape off, there is a scanned image. Coming back to the regulations part, there are regulations that you need to have, you need to retain on file. So you must have something that shows what the diagnostic material is if you're going to scrape off the slides. COVID has really put a new impetus on the ability to use digital transmission and full slide imaging. And so what, you know, was kind of behind a major inertia was given some impetus. And so I don't know, I mean, the emergency regulations have allowed us to use it a lot more, but I don't know what's going to happen in the future. But I think 
maybe the dam is broken because it was a lot easier looking, you know, at a slide through my Mac screen sometimes than driving in and, and exposing myself to the world, populace-wise and infection-wise. Yeah, I think one of the silver linings of the pandemic has been that push towards better utilizing a lot of the technology we have available to us. And I think in cytology, like you speak to, some of the challenges are that, you know, thick smears, Z-stacking, and hopefully as, you know, we're working on improved technology, it'll be easier to do these things and apply deep learning and AI and some of these exciting technologies. Well, we've got a study from the CAP Cyto Committee that I got to publish, finish, is that there really has been a lot of inertia, again, in cytopathology and surgical pathology and adopting the tech and um, hoping that uh, we can maintain the momentum given this experience because uh, it was like 9% of laboratories that participated in this study uh, were using whole site imaging to any extent. And mostly it was for teaching or tumor boards rather than archiving or consultation. So, so much exciting stuff going on in our field, you know, shifting gears a little bit. Dan, you'd mentioned that you have a lot more time to devote to your hobbies. I'd love to hear from those on the call. What do you do in your spare time? If you have any, what hobbies do y'all like to do? We'll let someone else go first. <laughs> I've been shooting my mouth off. No. <laughs> well, hobby-wise, I uh, love to play soccer. Since I'm here in Tampa, Florida, we have good weather, so we can play soccer all year round almost. And my daughter does dance. And so I do it as well because I used to do it. Wow. So I have like two kind of physical type activities I do besides bake, cakes, and cookies. <laughs> mm, I, I see Kartik's face. I know that's something we discussed on a prior path pod. So there's definitely some bakers up in here. Oh, yeah. Sourdough bread. So exciting to hear. I think so. So if Dan does sourdough, Kartik, I know you're a baker. I've been baking like crazy. Sanchita, are you the odd one out that doesn't do baking? Not to put you on the spot. Uh, I, I, someone's <laughs> got to eat all the stuff, right? So yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll just sit on the other side while you guys do all the baking and I'll taste them. I'll tell them which one's good. Excellent. Excellent. Sanchita can be our taste tester. Here's this, there, a master class has uh, the French baker Apollonia Pallon. Mm-hmm. And that's killer. I mean, she teaches you how to make sourdough, how to do all those kinds of French breads. She's a genius. So, Sanchita, what are your hobbies? Well, my hobbies have kind of like morphed. I think like with the COVID, I've kind of adapted a more active lifestyle, which pre-COVID wasn't there. So taking out biking. I mean, I have a Jack Russell Terrier. And for those of you who are familiar with Terriers, they have a lot of energy. (laughs) We do so much walking and biking that my dog, like end of the day, is completely wiped out, (laughs) which which is a good thing for both of us. And so, yeah. I think in a way, I've had more time to do some of the outdoor stuff. And kind of like Tampa, Houston's got good weather, too, year-round. Not a lot of people will think of Houston having good weather, but we did move to Houston because of the weather. So, yeah, I mean, it gets hot, but I'll take that. It it doesn't snow, and most of the year, you can be out there outside. So, it's been great. Has the snow melted up in Boston yet, Kartik? It's actually really nice out here. It is, let me see, it's 75 out today. I mean, how much more glorious can it get? And since the weather's been so nice, I've just been running more often. So I actually enjoy running quite a bit with my mask on. So don't worry, I am being mask appropriate. But yeah, I love to run, you know, a couple of miles. It's just nice along the water. And 
I haven't baked as much, which is kind of sad, but that's okay. I like to change things up a bit. And I've been learning music, which has been a new experience for me. So I'm learning the bass guitar, which cool. has been has been challenging, Ooh. but it's been a lot of fun to to really sort of delve into the world of music and learn music theory and things like that. So, yeah. That's how I okay. Hey, I saw I saw a call that AAC sent out an email. Uh, they're looking for people uh, to play music, right? Yeah, I saw that too, but I don't think it's a good idea <laughs> to do that just yet. <laughs> it's too early. I've only been doing it for about this is my fifth month, and I've definitely made progress, but not enough to the point where I should be playing anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so we all have aspirations. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I've got a Fender sitting in my room here that I haven't had a chance to play with. And so it, it needs work. But my major hobbies are, well, I've been doing a lot of 3D printing lately. And mm-hmm. I have a couple of machines. And I've been, actually what we did for our current Cyto Tech class, we 3D printed camera holders, cell phone holders for their microscopes. And I've been making FNA guns out of plastic, which are available on, on Thingiverse and whatnot. But that's aside from just stupid things that I make toys and, 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 and whatnot. It seems to be most of the world of 3D printing. That is amazing, Dan. What are you talking oh. about? There's nothing stupid about that. <laughs> I, uh, I'm a 3D printing enthusiast too. You guys can cool. see, but I'm holding up. Uh, Duke actually has a really, really robust. It's called the Innovation CoLab. They've got amazing, amazing 3D printers, CNC machines. They've got amazing classes. And I've been doing a lot of 3D printing. And this is actually a 3D print of a vertebra. And sorry for those on the podcast, you can't see it, but it's a 3D print of a vertebra that I extracted the bone in information out of a CT scan and then 3D printed it, which I was pretty impressed by myself. With. Oh, and I've got, a, cool. I've got a so. mandible back there somewhere that I extracted out of a CT scan too and printed. Not, I mean, it's a cool paperweight, but I was thinking it'd be great for medical education and gross instruction. So something I haven't totally, you know, explored oh. fully, but so cool. Getting from the scan to an SDL file, which is what you need to 3D print is something I'd like to talk to you about. Sometime. Oh, yeah, we, we can talk more offline. Yeah, Duke has amazing classes. And so in my free time, one of the benefits of being at an academic institution is that you can learn multidisciplinary things and it can be things in disciplines completely kind of outside of medicine, which is really fun. Yeah. So other hobbies I have are radio control aircraft. And I, I've been on the local ski patrol for 25 years. Wow. And so but as always, consistently going downhill. Uh, <laughs> so my knees don't take moguls very well anymore, but I, I still like to cruise. Well, I think we've definitely heard that in pathology, we've all had the ability to have a career, which is busy, do amazing things, and then also spend time outside and bake and exercise. So if anyone listening is not convinced that pathology is a great work-life balance, we work hard, we play hard, we eat very, very well, I think. Oh, yeah. And I also wanted to add that, and you alluded to that earlier when you were talking about ASC, that cytopathology feels like a family. I go to a lot of different meetings, but the ASC meeting I look forward to because it's kind of like this family reunion. You see your friends who are now kind of like family. And this year, because it was virtual, it I kind of missed everybody. I mean, just not the same virtually. So you get to see the same people over and over again, and you get to know their spouses, their kids, and you look forward to the next meeting so that you can kind of catch up with your family. So I just love my side of Pat's family. Yes. That's I agree. 
Amen. I figured my wife was half the reason I got elected. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everybody loves Tina. Yeah. So, well, hopefully we can all get together for a real dinner party sometime soon, maybe in Las Vegas for the annual meeting. You know, fingers crossed we'll all make it there. This has been so fun. I wish we could keep talking forever, but we're kind of towards the end of our time. And just to close off, I'd love to go around and just have everyone say, what is your best piece of advice? It can be life advice, pathology advice, cytopathology advice. Well, one advice I can provide is you can't outwork work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it will still be there. I uh, appreciate the opportunity I was given to be able to be a physician and to help patients, but I still want to make sure I get that time with my family, you know, and your friends and people and kids like that. So that's why cytopathology is great because we can do that. From my end, I think on the last path pod that that I was on with you, Sarah. I remember I quoted RuPaul's Drag mm-hmm. Race. So Purse First was a, a quote. Who's, it was said by Bob the Drag Queen on that show. And the idea behind that is you just go forward in life. You learn from your past experiences, but you just keep going forward. And you just live your best life because you only get one to live. And, you know, it's not the longest, you know, ever. So just you should live in the moment and then do what you're really passionate about, whether it be cytopathology, whether it be bone or soft tissue, whether it be head and neck, whatever you decide to do, just enjoy what you're doing. So that's my advice to to people who are listening in. That's exactly what I would say too. And I tell that to all our trainees, all our fellows, that it doesn't matter what you pick, but you have to absolutely love what you do because then it doesn't feel like work anymore. I mean, I don't come into work because, you know, it's a job, but it's because I really want to be here and do some of the exciting, cool things. So if you love what you do, it never feels like work. For me, it would be try to have compassion for those around you. Everyone's under stress. Your colleagues, the patients, the cider techs manning the scopes, the supervisors, even the administrators. Okay, Everyone's under stress. And so try to put yourself in their shoes and watch your judgments. I think that's all wonderful, wonderful advice. It would be nice if you gave your advice also. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, like, way to call you, me out. I was I have totally to call just you gonna, out. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so so I have so much advice. One thing that I really love is learning to say no. No matter where you are in your career, learn to say no, but say it the right way. And when you say no, think of someone who you could mentor who might appreciate the opportunity. As a junior person, I so appreciated when more senior people would say, you know, hey, are you interested in doing this thing? I got so many wonderful opportunities. And so I really like to pay that forward. So think of saying no as an opportunity to pay it forward. What your mentors and um, sponsors have done for you, you can do for other people. And so it becomes kind of a win-win. Yeah, I think it's great to be selective about things you're going to do. I think the thing that's paid the biggest dividends for me is to, when you're thinking about an opportunity, not say no to it because it's something you've never done and because you'd have to learn something to do it. I think I've had a lot of really interesting opportunities come my way, especially in the last year. Everything from PathPod and Path Elective to becoming a you know beaker builder just because, hey, you know, I have to learn something. Okay, well, I'm going to go learn it. And that was that was a really fun and exciting experience. And, you know, I've, I've grown a lot through those things. And I, I think it's all that's paid off for me. So great advice from everyone. 
All right. Wonderful advice. And I am just so grateful that I've been able to be part of the cytopathology community. I'm looking forward to so many years of real life dinner parties and virtual dinner parties with all of you. So thank you so, so very much to everyone for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you all for all you've done for cytopathology, our community, and our patients. Thank you for having us. Support for the Free PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod. Thank you.